Hopefully everyone does have a worship guide in hand. If you go to the back middle portion, you'll find uh, the scripture that we'll be meditating on, considering uh, during the sermon. I'm going to invite Eleanor forward. She's going to be reading it for us in just a second. Now let me just uh, orient you where we are. If you weren't here for a previous sermon, we are in a four-week series going through the minor prophet Haggai. In the book of Haggai, there's only two chapters, but there's four kind of distinct, discrete prophecies that are made. So we're in week three. We'll be looking at the third prophecy that we find in the book of Haggai. The book of Haggai, if you don't know the main message of it, it's not one of the books that you turn to over and over again. Let me just tell you, the book of Haggai is about how God's people, when they've lost their vision for the kingdom of God, can regain it by God's grace. It's about God's people who have allowed legitimate personal concerns, things like their home and their job and relationships, academic achievements, to take an illegitimate place in their hearts, to take an illegitimate role in their affections, and how God, because of his desire to bless and give life to his people, wayward though they are, and through them to bless the whole world, he moves towards his people to bring them back to him. He sends his prophet Haggai to preach a message of repentance, a call to renewed obedience, a reinvigorating of their hands to work with faith, and finally, to offer them his full blessing. Today, again, we're reading the third distinct prophecy in the book of Haggai, Eleanor. This is chapter 2, starting at verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. So with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig, the fig tree, the pomegranate and olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray again. Our Father, we want to receive now with open hands what you have to give us. Would we come to you with genuinely empty hands, with spirits that trust you, humble hearts, eager ears, and open eyes to receive this, to see this, your true, wonderful, life-giving word. Lord, we need your help now, so send your spirit. We ask these things in Christ, your Son's name. Amen. Weeds grow quickly, good fruit takes time. Everybody knows this. If you've got a garden, 
If you've ever tried to grow stuff, weeds grow quickly. Good fruit takes time. Weeds, of course, they grow fast. They cause lots of trouble for everyone. Weeds are opportunistic. They spread quickly, not only in good soil, good gardening soil, but also in bad and rocky soil. All that weeds need to grow is time. They don't need your time. They don't need your attention. Sadly, weeds are destructive. They hoard resources. They choke out plants that would benefit us. And unfortunately, if you live close to people, their weeds become your weeds. Right? My, my lawn that is filled with dandelions, it will inevitably seed your green dandelion-free lawn. On the other hand, growing fruit takes time. It requires your attention and diligence. But if we're patient... The fruit that's bared, that's bore, is a great blessing for everyone. It takes intentionality, of course, smart timing on the part of the gardener to get to that point, to grow fruit-giving plants. If you're starting a vegetable garden or a field from scratch, you need to germinate the seeds well beforehand. You need to prepare the soil, plant the seeds in their proper season, water, and remove weeds on an ongoing basis. And then, of course, you just need to kind of wait. Weeds grow quickly. Good fruit takes time. You and I, minute by minute, day by day, year by year, we are tending the garden of our souls. And we are doing so in one of two ways, only two ways that the scriptures give us. Either we are being inattentive and lax, failing to faithfully work the field God's entrusted to us in the ways that God has called us to, or we're being faithful in that field. We're walking in daily repentance, faith in God's promises, obedience to his word. The consequences of these two different ways of living couldn't be more stark. On the one hand, listen, living in disobedience to God always leads to death and destruction. It always leads to death and destruction. There's no other option given in Scripture. Because God is the very source of life. To try to find life apart from Him, to walk away from Him, is to walk away from life itself. It's to leave life for death, light for darkness. On the other hand, pursuing a life of faith and love according to God's word and promises by the power and help of the Holy Spirit through the work of Christ Jesus our Lord This kind of life God promises, he promises he will bless. He promises that if you sow in faith, you will reap God's abundant blessing. He promises, it's a guarantee in his word, if you sow in faith, you will one day reap abundant blessing. This prophecy that we've just read, it takes place, the text says, on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius. That means December 18th, 520 B.C. That's the date that this took place, where this word came through the prophet Haggai. If you are tracking with our series in Haggai, you know that this date is three months after the first prophecy that Haggai gave back in chapter 1. It's two months after the second prophecy that he gave that we looked at at the beginning of chapter 2 last week. So this time, mid-December, was very special for agricultural Israel. This was the season for seeding. It was the season for planting. The harvest had actually already taken place in those months before. If you can recall back to uh, uh, the first prophecy of Haggai and his second prophecy, 
you know that those things, uh, those prophecies, they took place during the harvest season. And we saw in those sections, as we see in this section, that they didn't have much to show for their harvest. This was actually the case. Israel had been living the land for about over 15 years, and their harvest had consistently been poor. This is something that, of course, this section laments as well, too. You look at verse 16. Uh, the people would go and they would look for 20 measures. They only found 10. They, they wanted wine, but the, grape, uh, the, the wine vat had less than half of what they would hope for. And so in this section, Haggai asks the people to consider their circumstances. Maybe you notice that word consider three times in this short section. To consider, you see it in verse 15. It's mentioned twice, the beginning and end of verse 18. Consider, consider carefully. That means he wants his people to think very hard, uh, to, to set their minds on what has happened to them over the last three months and in the years previous since they've been in the land, to chew on why this harvest was so meager, what it meant. The main message of this third prophecy, we could, we could summarize like this. Sin and disobedience and the consequences which inevitably follow it spread more quickly and easily than holiness. But those who sow repentance and faith, which is observed in obedience, can be sure they will one day reap God's blessing. Now, that's a mouthful, all right? So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it again, all right? And, and listen, li- listen, listen to what's going on here in this prophecy. Sin and disobedience have horrible consequences. This is like spiritual gravity. They always lead to death and decay. And this kind of spiritual defilement, it transfers. It doesn't just stay in itself like a dandelion in a field. It spreads and seeds elsewhere from person to person, from person to object. It spreads quickly and easily and causes destruction wherever it goes. But Haggai encourages them with this. Those who sow faithfully will certainly reap God's blessing one day. Even if they have been sowing seeds that are weeds right now, if they begin to sow faithfully one day in the future, it might take a while. A life of faith and obedience always leads to God's blessings. Again, weeds grow quickly. Good fruit takes time. I want you to notice a few things from the text this morning. I want you to notice in verses 11 through 14 how sin and disobedience ruin everything. Sin and disobedience affect and infect everything. In verses 11 through 14, Haggai approaches the priests who are in Israel, and he asks them a question concerning ceremonial cleanliness. Back in the times of the Old Testament, God had given to his people a particular set of external practices so that they could be what's called made clean. They could be ready to meet with God, to worship God in the temple. God was holy, he was set apart, and so he gave them what is called the holiness code or or holiness rituals. These were things that God's people were to do so that they could be prepared to meet with a holy God. He was holy, they were not, and so God gave them these rituals, these, these external rites, things like circumcision, dietary restrictions, laws surrounding disease, how to handle dead bodies. Now this holiness code was always pointing to something deeper. It was never meant to be the final word on holiness and readiness to meet with God. Even here in Haggai, we're being pointed to internal realities uh, that these external realities were pointing us to. Our problem is not fundamentally failing to have clean hands, but failing to have clean hearts before God. 
This is something that Jesus picks up in the New Testament. This is why we no longer carry out these holiness rituals, because Jesus came to fulfill them. In Matthew 15, Jesus calls the crowd to him, and he says, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. That is what defiles a person. But in the time that Haggai speaks, the holiness code was of vital importance to all of God's people. This is the world that Haggai is speaking into, so we need to listen to him speaking into this world. In verse 11, Haggai asks the priests of Israel a question, a particular question regarding the holiness code. Starting in verse 12, he asks this question. You can look at it. If someone carries holy meat, that means meat that was uh, sacrificed to God and was something that actually could then be shared to others, he carries it in the fold of his garment. And then that fold touches bread or stew or wine or oil or any other kind of food. Does that uh, bread or stew or wine or oil, does that become holy, set apart, clean? And the priests mull on it. They consider the code as it is written in the law. And the answer to this question is no. Holiness doesn't spread like that. Holiness doesn't spread easy. But then Haggai asks those same priests, starting in verse 13, you can look at it, if someone who is unclean by contact with the dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? Again, this is the same order, uh, but with defilement this time. The dead body is unclean. You know, maybe the fold of the garment got touched. If that fold then touches something or someone else, does that transfer? Does that person or object become unclean? And the answer to that question, according to the holiness code, is yes. This is because spiritual defilement, spiritual uncleanliness transfers far more easily than holiness. In a fallen world, sin acts like a weed, moving quickly and easily. So why is Haggai asking this seemingly esoteric question about the holiness code? Well, verse 14 explains. This is an image. This is something that he wants them to learn from. He says, so it is with this people. And with this nation before me, declares the Lord. It means all the people who are gathered in Israel now, the the remnant which has just returned from Babylon. And so with every work of their hand, what they offer there is unclean. What he's saying is that they were made unclean when they refused to build God's temple. That's what Haggai's about. The people coming back into the land, being instructed to build the temple, and just refusing to do so. They had refused to build God's house, and that sin and disobedience rendered them unclean. It was years and years of this being the case, where they refused to do this work, to put God's work first. Instead, they put their work first. And that sin polluted them, but it didn't just pollute them. It affected the work of their hands. It affected their offerings, their sacrifices. Those also were considered by God to be unclean, unfit for worship. Again, the primary sin that's being addressed in the book of Haggai is Israel's refusal to build the temple of God. Back then, back in chapter 1, that was the first prophecy that Haggai gave to his people. This was an undealt with, ongoing case of disobedience to God. It was like a dead body in the land. And Haggai says here, this sin and this disobedience transferred. It spread. It didn't stay isolated in its own compartment on its own. Just, you know, one area of disobedience right over here. No, it had ripple effects. Because sin, listen, sin and disobedience ruin everything. 
They ruin everything. When sin is present in your life, not dealt with, unchecked, nothing avoids its touch. There is no such thing, friends, as a secret sin. Your sin doesn't just affect you. We know this. It affects your home. It affects your workplace. It affects your neighbors, your family, your worship here on Sundays. When you harbor what you think is secret sin, compartmentalized sin, little sin over here, when you nurture that disobedience in your heart, everything's out of whack. It can't help but not be. Listen, there are very real painful consequences of sin. You ought to feel this morning, if you are in sin, like nothing's right. Like nothing's clicking. Something's wrong with your work. Something's wrong with your marriage. If you are knowingly walking in disobedience to God, it's because of this. Sin and disobedience ruins everything. It ruins everything. I want you to also notice in our text something very important about this, that sin's consequences, the destructive trail that sin leaves, it's meant to lead us to repentance. All of these negative effects that Israel is facing right now, because of their sin and disobedience, it has a purpose. It's not to hurt them. It's to turn them back to God. Sin ruins everything, but this ruin is intended by God for this very particular purpose. Now, we know that our sin doesn't just affect us. The people in this uh, this book, their sin led to a poor harvest, and guess who that affected? It affected their children. It affected their neighbors. It affected everybody, okay? Our children are affected by our sin, and so the the consequences that I'm talking about here are not only things that you've committed, discrete sins that you've committed, but also the repercussions of other people's sins to you. Look at verses 15 through 17. The prophet Haggai has the people remember the past several years and their ongoing disobedience, their failure to rebuild the temple and the poor harvests that they've experienced over this time. This was the time in verse 15 captured by saying, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. Things have changed now, thankfully, starting chapter 1 of Haggai. Over the last three months, they've been building, but today they're still facing the ripple effects, the consequences of their past sin. And Haggai describes to them how this sin has affected their harvest. You look at verse 16 again. You came to the heap. You wanted 20 measures. There's only 10. You came to the wine vat to draw 50. There was only 20. God says that their poor harvest wasn't coincidental. They, they, they didn't correspond to their sin and disobedience by pure happenstance. Oh, it's just been a couple of years of bad harvest. This means nothing to us. No, in verse 17, God says very specifically, I struck you. I struck you. And all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. These were seemingly natural occurrences that happened in the world, uh, which, would, which would decimate any kind of crop. But God says these things were not simply natural occurrences. They came from him. The King James Version of the Bible uses the great word smote, right? I smote you, it says, and I smote all the products of your toil, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. For years and years, despite the smiting, they didn't change their ways until Haggai chapter 1 comes along. Look at the reason why God does the smoting. Again, he hopes that it will cause the people to turn back to him. It wasn't out of hatred to God's people that the harvest was ruined and pitiful. This was a severe mercy from the hand of God. Now, we don't like this. We do not like our pains 
and our disappointments. We do not like the consequences that our sin have on our lives and the lives of others or the sins and disobedience of other people, how they can affect us deeply. And we especially don't like that this in Scripture is one of the chief ways that God uses to turn people to Him. We'd much rather Him find another way. But for those of you who have suffered in a real way, many of you know what it's like to, in your darkest moments, turn to God and to see His face. You know what it's like to be at rock bottom in one way or another, whether in plenty or in in want, to in total weakness approach your God and to find him there. And how even afterwards, in some strange, nearly impossible way, you can give thanks for that extremely difficult time because it renewed your faith and your dependency on your father. The author C.S. Lewis puts it this way, pain insists upon being attended to, God whispers in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God is shouting to Israel here. For the last few years in this poor harvest, he has been yelling at them, calling to them. Out of his love and mercy for them, he hasn't given up on them. He is shouting to them in their pain, their disappointing harvest for this purpose, so that they would turn back to him and find life. Is God shouting at you today through your pain? Through through some severe disappointment and sadness that doesn't make sense to you. Listen, if you trust in Jesus, if you are his This isn't his anger towards you. His smiting isn't to chase you away. Rather, it is to turn you back to him. He is calling for you, even through your pain, to turn to him. Now, maybe you're here this morning, and you're not walking with God. There are things you do, beliefs you hold, affections and desires that you just indulge on a regular basis, that you know, you know, they're not right, they're not good, they don't benefit myself or other people, but you do them anyway. And you actually don't feel any pain because of it. No consequences. Maybe you know people in your life who just, they do whatever they want and they seem to be doing great. There's a very memorable scene in the movie Dune, I can't remember if it's in the book or not, where a character asks this question. When is a gift not a gift? When is a gift not a gift? The context of this quote is that a noble family in this world has seemingly been granted nearly unending wealth and power and opportunity by the emperor of this world. In just a matter of months, they're probably going to be rich beyond belief. They'll be the most influential house in the galaxy. But what this character knows, who says this line, is that this gift from the emperor is not actually a gift. This gift, this wealth, this power it will lead to the utter destruction and decimation of this noble house. It'll bring war to them. It'll bring unending trouble. It will bring death. All of this wealth, all of this power will lead to their undoing. When is a gift not a gift? I want you to imagine a situation in your life where you got everything you wanted apart from God. In this life, you got everything you dreamed of. You got your dream job. You got all of the wealth that you wanted. You get the spouse you wanted. You get the family you wanted. You get the respect and esteem from your colleagues. Whatever it is that you particularly desire, you get that thing. And you get it all living apart from God. You chase after all of these things. You achieve them by ignoring God and his word. You spend your life focusing on yourself and your pleasures and your advancement 
uh, without thinking anything of the Lord and of his people. You focus on your desires, and one day you look around at all that you've achieved, and you have no pangs of guilt, no difficulty, no shame. Your body's free of illness. Your relationships seem to be in perfect harmony, and you're good. When is a gift not a gift? What a horrible thing on that day for God not to strike you and all the products of your toil so that you would turn to him. What an awful thing to see that you have turned away from God, the very source of life itself, and he has ceased to bring you the pain that might turn you back to him. He's given you what you wanted, what you chased after so hard, treasures that will certainly bring you only death and ruin in the end. Friends, don't despise God's discipline towards you. Don't despise his word. It's a severe mercy often, but it's a mercy nonetheless. So this is what we've noticed in chapter 2 of Haggai so far. We've noticed that sin and disobedience ruin everything. We've noticed also that sin's consequences are not God's cruelty. They're meant to lead us to repentance, to renewal, to new obedience. They're meant to lead us and turn us back to God, not away from him. Furthermore, I want you to notice in verses 18 through 19 how God's blessing for obedience, though it comes in a later season, is sure to come. When you sow in faith and repentance and obedience, you will always reap the blessing of God. But often it takes a while. Weeds grow quickly. Good fruit takes time. Or better, the cross always comes before the crown. In chapter 1, Israel listened to Haggai's message, and they repented. In chapter 1, they started to rebuild the temple. They put God back into the central place in their lives. Here in chapter 3, or chapter 2, it's been three months that they've been hard at work restoring the temple. They were trying to walk in love and obedience to God. They were doing the things that God called them to. But look, the harvest comes in, and it's still pitiful. Life still wasn't great. There was no dramatic turnaround. Verse 19, the grapes, the figs, the pomegranates, they yielded pretty much nothing. Again, this prophecy takes place in mid-December. This is the season for seeding. This is not harvest time. And Israel's probably wondering, as they go to their fields again, after many years of seeding and waiting for a good harvest and being disappointed over and over again, they're wondering, is it even worth it? Like, should I just keep on doing what I'm doing and get the same results? Season after season, we've been disappointed Nothing's come from it. Maybe God has just checked out. Maybe he's done with us. Maybe these consequences, which we've deserved, will just kind of keep on going on forever. Nothing's changed, even though we've tried to change, even though we've tried to be faithful. Should I keep going? And again, genuinely, they were. They, they, they were doing their very best in good faith to obey God. In chapter 1, it says that God stirred and softened their hearts. This wasn't just external obedience. This was heart change. They had repented. They began to live as the people of God. But still, again, their circumstances remained the same, difficult, meager. I want you to look at the last words that God speaks to them in this prophecy. At the end of verse 19, God sees what they see. They see, he sees that that. The olive tree hasn't produced. The pomegranates, the figs, the grapes, they're very meager. But listen to what he says. But from this day on, I will bless you. 
That is from the time that they repented and began the work. He gives that time capture. Again, uh, you know, three months before, God's disposition to them was only of blessing. But just like their harvest, or just like their seeding, which they were about to, just about to do, you sow in one season and you reap in another. You sow in one season, you reap in another. This was their sowing season of faithfulness. The fruit would come later. It was promised to them. God's blessing for obedience, though it comes in a later season, is sure to come. Paul, in the letter to Galatians, he writes to people who are in the same position as the people of Haggai's day, perhaps the people who are sitting here right now who have been trying to live faithfully and their life continues to be disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. Listen to what he writes to them. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. He's not made a fool of. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let's not grow weary, friends, of doing good, he says. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. God's telling his people, he tells his people throughout the ages, from this day on I will bless you, so keep sowing faithfully. Listen, friends, I know it's hard. I know it's discouraging. There are probably many pains in your life that you are wondering, why are these going on? If God is for me, why does it feel like he's against me? But listen to what Haggai is saying. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians. Keep walking in obedience. Keep walking in love towards God. In due season, he promises you, you will reap all of the goodness that he has in store for you. Life, peace, joy, eternally, forever. Israel's work back in the 5th century B.C., was to rebuild the temple. This was the place where God had promised to meet with them, where he promised that his peace and blessings would flow to them and then through them out into the world. And what the temple pointed to was the ministry of Jesus Christ himself. When Jesus came, he came to be the source of peace and blessing to us. True, deep blessing, not the temporary happiness that the world offers here today, gone tomorrow, but the deep-rooted, lasting blessing that he offers to us. This is blessing, though, that came to us at a great cost to himself, to make us who are unclean and disobedient clean again. Jesus was crushed. He was made unclean. He was cast out. For us to receive God's blessing, Jesus first had to be cursed for us. And it is in Jesus, Jesus who is our Savior and our friend, that we see our hope too, that for him the cross came before the crown. He sowed with pain in one season, but he reaped our joy and our blessing later. He sowed faithfully, though it was impossibly hard, but in due season he was crowned with the victory of resurrection. And this is what he offers to us now, friends. So listen, plant faithfully. Weed diligently. Stay away from all sin and contamination in your life. Kill it or it will be killing you. Every day sow in repentance, in obedience, in renewed faith to God's goodness and his promises. God has promised you, friends, his blessings will not stop from the moment that you begin to trust in him until forever for those who are in him, in his son Jesus. The fruit of such things, listen, it might not happen immediately. In fact, for many, they will not see this fullness until eternity comes. But this is God's promise, and it can be trusted. He does not lie. From this day on, 
I will bless you. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask for ourselves, for our church, for our city, that we would believe what we see in your word more than what we can see with our eyes. Lord, often we, we, we act like we are all-knowing, like we know what will, will bring us pleasure and joy and contentment. Our experience shows otherwise. We don't have the first clue what will satisfy us, what will give us lasting life. We've, we've tried many things. Lord, for those who are gathered here this morning, if there are people here who have tried so many things only to be disappointed and crushed by them, I pray that they would look away from the things of the world and they would look to you, to your Son, who is the source of peace and blessing now and forever. Would they find forgiveness in his blood, cleansing from their uncleanliness, Lord? Would you help those who are, who are here today who are discouraged, who seem to be only harvesting thistles and briars? Lord, would they continue to weed diligently, to sow faithfully? Would they hold on to your promise that your blessing is coming? that towards your people, it is a sure thing. Lord, build our faith, we ask. We pray all these things in Christ, our Savior's name. Amen.